Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. In this episode, we're speaking with the founders and CEOs of two new operators, Jesse Marinko of Phoenix Senior Living and Adam Kaplan of Solera Senior Living. Both companies are creating multi-brand portfolios, a common practice in the hotel industry that's now starting to gain traction in senior living. Before we get to those interviews, we'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. Are you looking to streamline your workflows for service delivery and documentation? Visit www.pointclickcare.com to see how Point Click Care's new mobile app, Companion, can provide you with simplified services and medication delivery in the palm of your hand. While Phoenix Senior Living and Solera Senior Living are relatively new operators on the senior living scene, both companies have experienced leaders. Jesse Marinko of Phoenix was a regional operator with Sunrise Senior Living for nearly a decade, and then a VP with Benchmark Senior Living for nearly four years. Adam Kaplan spent nine years at Senior Lifestyle, so both Marinko and Kaplan know what it takes to run a large provider with a national footprint, and both men decided that they want to build smaller companies. Keep listening to hear their reasons why, and to learn how they're taking slightly different approaches to creating multiple brands. You'll also gain insights into how Phoenix created a smaller scale product for more rural markets and get a preview of some interesting partnerships in the works for Solera. To kick things off, here's my interview with Phoenix Senior Living founder and CEO, Jesse Malenko. All right, Jesse, welcome to the podcast. So to start, I'm just wondering if you can give a little bit of the backstory about Phoenix Senior Living, when it was founded, and describe how large the portfolio is today. Gotcha. No, that's great. So Phoenix Senior Living is a southeastern focused, regionally focused company that is a completely vertically integrated shop. We do the development and the operations and the capital raising all in-house. We are headquartered out of Roswell, Georgia, here in Atlanta, and we currently have 22 operating properties with five under construction. And we were founded in April of 2014 when I left Benchmark Senior Living and moved back south. And really out of kind of the guise of learning, you know, through my time at Sunrise and Benchmark, I spent 10 years at Sunrise in the 2000s and then spent five years at Benchmark and really saw the difference in what a regional operator performed and how they performed. And it just really left a big imprint on me that, you know, the ability to know your local markets and to be really in tuned to your region allowed for greater success, better access to human capital, and overall better financial results and occupancy. So really drove the vision on why we wanted Phoenix to be the premier senior living developer and operator in the Southeast. Great. And so I think currently you own and operate some communities and then third-party manage others. Is that right? Majority ownership. So we do very little third-party management of our current buildings. I think 22, we have three to five that are management contracts. So majority of our portfolio is uh, joint ventures. We're, We're big believers in putting equity and putting money into deals and aligning everybody's interest towards the same goals versus kind of the fee for service management route. Got it. So one thing that we've been reporting on is this trend toward kind of a multi-brand portfolio. And I think, correct me if, if I'm wrong or if you think about this differently for Phoenix, but I think you've got kind of that play going on with some of the standalone memory care branded as the Pearl, assisted living and memory care as the Phoenix, 
other communities, I think with your uh, JV partner connection branded as the retreat. So I'm wondering if you can uh, talk about your approach to branding within that own and operated portfolio and the idea behind creating some of these specific sub brands, if that's how you think of them underneath the Phoenix umbrella. Yeah. Well, I think branding is such an important part of what you do when you're, you're going to become a regional operator. I think when I look at this industry and I look how we are still such in the kind of infinitesimal or just kind of the youth stage of this growth of this industry and to see where it's going to grow and progress, you know, when you look at multifamily and you look at hotel, you see that branding concept of tiers of products very successful and the consumers are able to identify and really connotate value based upon what those brands are. And so when we started the company or when I started the company, I just, I knew we we needed to kind of head in that route. And so typically a Phoenix product would be one that we self-develop and build from the ground up. We have a retreat brand that we typically label to acquisitions that we bring on board or to like smaller, more rural markets. Like when we do our development in Hartsville or in Berryville or in Fishersville or Camden, South Carolina, little bit more rural product, typically a smaller product, kind of labeled in that retreat brand. Still very high end, but probably not to the same level of finish that maybe say a Phoenix was. And then the Pearl brand, I just love because the standalone memory care is is something we're really passionate about. Definitely not our sole business line or our largest business line, but we just had a lot of success with it. And I think we're really passionate about the way it's designed and the specificity of care in our programming. So we just it was a natural alignment to be able to name those neighborhoods and name those projects within that coordination so people can understand what to expect when they start looking and, you know, previewing what they wanted to see or what they're looking for out there in the market that's available for, for their loved one or, you know, for whoever they may be looking. Great. So with this kind of multi-brand strategy, we've seen this on the hospitality side, of course, for many years and one play for hotels has been to try to kind of control a market by having multiple brands all co-located in a geography to serve different types of consumers. So I'm wondering if that makes sense for Phoenix, if you have or would consider having a Pearl and a Phoenix and a retreat all kind of co-located. It sounds like the retreat at least is maybe targeted toward entirely different kinds of markets. Yeah, no, actually, you're, you're spot on, though. That is another benefit of the branding concept is we are able to go into a market and kind of portray or, or uh, offer to the local customers and families the ability to choose a brand that kind of fits their their choice. I mean, some people want the nice, shiny penny with, you know, the highly decorative, very modern finishes you would see in residential, you know, new construction architecture. And then some people just want a very home-like feel on a, on a simpler program. And, and some communities, you know, single-story assets might fit that brand. So we definitely have that, especially in the Atlanta market. I have, I think in the Alpharetta or North Fulton market alone, I have like five buildings that, you know, some are called Addington's. You know, if you were called Phoenix, if we were to ever add anything, we'd probably call it a retreat in that market. And then sometimes when we have really special projects that are just super unique, like we have in Birmingham or in Huntsville, we'll give them their own names, like Madison Crossings or the Bluffs of Greystone. You know, we definitely think about the local market that we're within and, and try to connotate names and feelings along with the local market. To Our product's very local. 70% of our move-ins have a loved one that live within 10 to 15-minute drive time of our community. So we really make sure we understand what the local market makeup is. 
Yeah. And you mentioned Madison Crossings and Addington Place. When I was looking at just the website, I kind of assumed that those were maybe acquisitions or third-party management, but those names are are those owned and operated communities as well, it sounds like. Addington is a management one, but the Bluffs of Greystone is a ground-up development done by us in a joint venture with a group out of the Midwest called Kirko Construction or Kirko Development. So, you know, again, it's all market-specific driven. Because we are a regional operator, we are able to really understand the local flair and the local culture of every market and then make sure that our product all the way from name to art to decoration to services to offerings really match the culture of that market. Got it. So that maybe gets at another question I had, which is about some of the challenges of operating a kind of brand diversified portfolio. Maybe, for example, from a sales and marketing perspective, how centralized is that function versus having to be handled more at the local level to match the brand and the and the kind of local flair? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things we've really tried to make sure we do is remember remember where the real value of this business is and the value of this business is our team members and our associates in the field on the ground. And and that's who the relationships are made and maintained with. So here at the home office, we make sure our job is just to support and give the communities the resources and support they need. So I would definitely say we do not centralize that kind of messaging or managing those sales strategies. We, we assist them and we work with them, but every community has its own team and that team you know, we work with them on their sales and marketing plan to help give them ideas and challenge their thoughts. But each community has its own culture and flair. And I think that's where the, the branding concept actually plays to that very well, because they all kind of have their own unique feeling. Phoenix at Roswell is different than the Phoenix at Milton, even though they're eight miles apart and still a Phoenix property. They, they just have a totally different feel. And even the team has a different feel because the people in the buildings are what matter. I mean, that's what, that's what the residents and the families are buying. So where are you seeing maybe some of the efficiencies of having, even though you have these sub-brands, obviously they're all under a kind of parent company. Are there shared technology platforms, things like that? Oh, of course, yeah. So the the benefit is, you know, you got to have streamlined systems. So we are a paperless, keyless company, um, completely streamlined platform. Our accounting, CRM, electronic health records are all on one platform. Our access control for door control and, and security cameras are on one platform. Our, you know, we use, you know, uh, maintenance monitoring system tells on one platform for everybody. So, so we create and utilize systems that allow us from Phoenix Senior Living as a management company to really have a, a good view into each building on where their opportunity areas are to train and coach and to help them kind of avoid the pitfalls that might lead to some failed service delivery items. So having streamlined systems through a corporation, whether you're national or regional, is imperative for a differentiator. And so that allows us, regardless of the brand, to kind of normalize the business and look at where our opportunities are. And then from a financial perspective, another thing that we have learned in looking at the hospitality industry is that margins can be really different across different brands, which I think no one would be surprised that the margin for a business travel hotel would be very different than for a luxury hotel, for example. On this senior living side, would you say margins are pretty similar across the Pearl, the Phoenix, the Retreat, Madison Crossings, et cetera, or could margins be different and have to kind of be managed in terms of expectations across the I portfolio? I think margins are definitely driven local market-wise. I don't think it's mm-hmm. really – I don't think we're at a point yet where we'll feel a different in the brand. 
you know, it, it's really going to be the cost of labor, the cost of fixed expenses. And then, you know, if, you, if you're a good operator, whatever the care that's required to, to give good quality care is what you're going to put out there on the floor. And so that, therefore, your margins are just kind of a natural outcome of whatever totally driven and derived off of whatever rate you're going to be able to charge in that market, which, as you know, many times has to do with either a lack of supply or, or extreme affluency within that market. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can describe the retreat specifically that model, because I think it's interesting that you're going a little smaller. We hear differing things. Some companies say they're building bigger because that's, they're sort of anticipating that the boomers want uh, larger units. They want to be able to bring in a lot of their possessions. They want to be able to entertain, et cetera. But then we also see this a sort of competing impulse toward tiny houses and going small. So how did you make the decision to create the retreat on the model you did? So we do both. You know, we got our Bluffs and Madisons and the Phoenix at Brazelton, the Phoenix at Union Hill, which are massive, you know, 150-unit ILIL memory care properties. You know, they've got the whole continuum on, really large suites, really good offerings. But most of those areas are located relatively close to a metro, you know, a major metro, whether it's Birmingham, Huntsville, Atlanta, whatever it may be. That retreat brand was really the opportunity that I saw throughout the Southeast that as you know the southeast continues to grow as a region and people continue to move and migrate this way some of the smaller satellite cities are are really having sneaky growth and kind of a surprising wealth move out to those ways you know remote working is allowing a consu- a worker who used to have to stay close to the city now work from home 3 days a week and can go further out and be in towns that might appeal to them a little bit more. And so we saw this opportunity where there was absolutely no supply. And we we saw there was this kind of festering, growing demand that only a regional operator would be able to identify. But when we looked at it, you know, we said, man, we're a little scared to drop our bread and butter 80, 90 unit AL memory care on there. We just, we're, we're just not sure you know, that that's a pretty risky move given a market that might not have the population and the density we thought. So we looked for plots and acreage that had expandability and started out with a good core. And that was kind of the concept around the retreat is build something that we were pretty sure the demand in the market will fill what we have. And we had to build something kind of 50 plus units that would still allow some efficiency and some margin. And then the goal is, as that market continues to mature and absorption continues to happen, if the need's there, we can then add on very easily given our surrounding acreage or lots. And so it's kind of we build now to size, and then we think about the future of where we could expand and add as that market continues to grow. But undoubtedly, we have done far better on our lease-ups in our rural and tertiary markets than we've ever done in our major metros, just candidly. And I don't think it should be very surprising. It's The law of supply and demand works in every business, no matter where you are. That's really interesting. So I was also wondering if you could speak to the kind of diverse portfolio that Phoenix has in terms of different types of services that are offered. I think that obviously you've got a background with Sunrise, with Benchmark. You, I think, have experience in a lot of different types of operations, but I imagine there has to be some challenges with having standalone memory care and assisted and independent and having some buildings you know, be dedicated to different types of, of care, et cetera. So can you speak to the decision to create this kind of diversified company from a services rendered standpoint? 
Yeah, I think it's a natural need and evolution of what the consumer demands. The consumer wants to see that continuum so they have that peace of mind and security to know. But then when we're looking at pent-up markets, we recognize the need of certain products. There are certain products that have somewhat saturated markets on the AL memory care side or the IL side, but have absolutely no standalone memory care, where the community is literally designed specifically for people with dementia and serves those needs with, you know, continuous walking paths with no dead ends and a lot of natural light, but clean security and a lot of spaces that allow easy entrance and easy exit in and throughout activities throughout the entire community. So we saw that need and that application. And it's a big reason why we stayed away from prototype development. You know, when we look at every site and every market, we kind of custom fit our project both from a size and a product offering based on what we see the needs within that market. So it was a natural just progression of our business. And to your point, you know, I've been a part of, you know, CCRCs down in Florida and up in Connecticut, and I've ran 32-unit AL memory cares in Augusta, Georgia. So I've kind of touched every spectrum of the business and seen the benefits and, and sometimes, you know, the pressures or the barriers that certain products could bring but ultimately knew in this sector, I always wanted to stay in kind of the private pay housing for seniors market, which kind of encompasses, you know, all the way from 55 plus all the way through standalone memory care. So just a natural decision of where I thought the business would be sustainable for a long time. And we've been reporting on the rise in companies that seem to be targeting that younger demographic, trying to create kind of an active adult, they call it different things, but an independent living light, some version of that really low acuity product. Is that something that you're interested in? Oh, 100%. We're currently doing an expansion. We did a 48-unit standalone memory care in Dallas, Georgia, which is a western suburb of the Atlanta market leased up very well, leased up in 11 months. So we bought the surrounding 30 acres and are building a senior city. So we are expanding an AL IL under one roof, and then we're putting down about 30 plus cottages on the site that kind of fit exactly what you're talking about, that demographic, whether they're two-pack or four-pack pods. But, you know, they're two-bed, two-bath, single-car garage, kind of call them 14 to 1,800 square foot cottages that allow that let's call it a you know mid to late 70 senior who wants the security of someone checking in and services available but might not yet be ready to go into kind of apartment style living and still wants to feel like they can kind of stretch their elbows a little bit so we too see that demand and that need so i'd say sometimes our appetite is a little less than others sometimes you could argue it's a little more but i see the need there and i just think it's a continued progression to try to provide these seniors, that, that continuum they want. I mean, we're all seeing it with not just the baby boomers, but just also the adult child who is the shopper, their demands and their wants and their thoughts of future progression planning, you know, for their parent or grandparent, whoever they may be shopping for. So, yeah, that, I think you'll continue to see that sector grow. And, and I think on a national scale, IL is, is still pretty well underserved by most measures and, and you know, economists you know, who, who determine supply and demand and all that fun stuff. And do you really like, it sounds like that is kind of a active adult type product that's embedded close to or within this larger continuum. Do you think that that makes sense to build that way versus creating more of a kind of standalone, you know, almost a, it's like a, a multifamily type building with a little light layer of services built in? 
Yeah, I think ultimately that I still think you have to be part of a continuum. You know, I think they're still going to want some segregation from that, if you will, or some separation probably is the right word for it. But I think you're going to want to see, they're going to want to see that. The consumer is going to want to feel like they're, they still have their own pocket, but in the back of their mind, they still kind of want to know that sense of security. I think when you're really looking in at these potential truly just 55 plus active adult plays, I think what you're going to find is a lot of seniors are lacking the security and the community involvement that they think they're going to get. Because at the end of the day, if you put a clubhouse with a bunch of cottage homes and nothing else but a lady who comes in twice a week to do bingo or cards, you're just, it's really hard to get people out of their home into that clubhouse. But, you know, if you've got a robust community with tons of offerings all under one roof plus a restaurant to kind of bring you in, you know, at the end of the day, food's the the, the way to anybody's soul and heart. So the mm-hmm. the ability to be able to serve the restaurant and provide, you know, high-quality food really allows us to bring the senior in and make them a part of the community and really tap into the the social aspect of the dimensions that we really want to touch. So I think that'd be hard to do with just kind of a standalone 55 plus, but that's my perspective. I'm sure there's a lot of different theories and thoughts out there. Mm-hmm. I think Phoenix has a relationships with a number of different capital partners. We've reported on the Ridea relationship with Renew REIT. And I think you just started working with a new senior to take over a couple of communities. Is that right? Yeah, we did. We took over two of their buildings recently, actually here in uh, March. So it's relatively new transaction. So we have CSL, Connection Senior Living, who we do development with, and then they're kind of looking to be a long-term holder. Then we have Renew. We also have a couple buildings with Invesc. We have a few buildings with AR Global, and then we have a few buildings with New Seniors. And those just kind of all have been part of it's a small industry, and so when you try to do a good job or you try to develop a reputation, you know, you, you tend to work with people that you know and like, and and hopefully we're continuing to build and grow that reputation for ex- execution and quality. So I think we're just getting a lot of opportunities put in front of us, and, and we're trying to do business with people that share our same mindset and values and commitment to a high-quality product. Great. I think you mentioned earlier that you kind of prefer to have equity in the projects, but also obviously you've done some third-party management and I think with New Senior most recently. So I guess, can you just speak to what you're sort of seeing out there in the marketplace in terms of acquisitions or third-party management opportunities versus development? What does the pipeline look like? And we've heard on the acquisition side, prices are very high. And then on the development side, construction costs are really going up. So it seems like there's some pressure on either either way you go. Yeah. And you, you nailed it right on the head. I mean, those are just facts, right? Acquisition prices are going up. So a lot of deals are either getting overpaid or just not getting done because they can't paper and debt won't get behind it. And then on the development side, you know, beyond just the amount of development that happened over the last six years, you're just seeing those construction prices really put constraints on margins and abilities to hit the numbers you need in order to get the financing and the cushions that you want. So it is a tough market, and that's where having really strong relationships that are more long-term versus transactional are going to allow you to kind of stick to your strategy of, of kind of continual manageable growth and that's kind of been a key we focused on with our capital partners and relationships and another big reason why we put equity in deals. You know, at the end of the day, if you're willing to put some money behind a project, that speaks big volumes versus kind of just being a fee-for-service developer or manager. 
there are times that that works. We, like we said, we do have a few projects with uh, AR Global and New Senior that we do management, but we did that because we liked the people there. We liked the message. We got behind their belief in how they wanted to manage the product and what they wanted to do. And so ultimately we felt comfortable getting into that, hopefully thinking this will eventually grow into some sort of joint venture style relationship. I mean, that's the end goal of any management contract we take over. You know, eventually we would hope that would convert to some form of a joint venture where we could participate and put money in and continue to realize uh, some of the upside that the operations creates on the real estate side. Right. So just to end, I want to hit you with a couple sort of broader base questions that I think are on everyone's mind in the industry. The first one is staffing. Labor seems to be number one when I ask people what's keeping them up at night. Is Does that hold for you too? And any initiatives or strategies you have for on recruitment retention? Yeah, it, trust me, it's keeping us all up because the people are what matter. I mean, that's the secret sauce in this business. So, you know, it, it's always, it's not even just people. It's great talent. It's you know, servant leaders with a caring heart, which is one of the beautiful parts of this industry. It's this industry draws some amazing caregivers and some amazing employees. But with that said, the need and the growth of this industry has just put a constraint on the amount of people we have who have experience in this industry. So one of the strategies we've had to implement a little bit is is looking for industries that have like similarities, you know, seven-day-a-week businesses, high customer service touch points, businesses where the it's more of a relationship versus a transactional sale. And we've tried to look at ways to continue to lure people into the industry and then train them up the way we want them versus, you know, sometimes I'll call it a retread where you, you kind of take an employee that's worked for about four or five different organizations in this industry and you're trying to break some of the habits they've maybe had with a prior operator. Not that that's right or wrong, just we have a different way of doing business. And so sometimes that can be a little bit of a struggle when you're hiring people that that have that mentality. So we've tried to get a little bit out of industry and then really focused heavily on training and development, which is kind of one of our secret sauces here. We have a whole training university program here that that we run our staff through. But beyond that, you know, it's just really making sure you find passionate people who really care about what they do. And then just making hiring and interviewing part of your weekly routine. You know, whether you've got an opening or not, we, I mean, it's, it's called human capital planning is the technical term. But, you know, we have a, hu- a total human capital plan that addresses needs, holes, but really building the bench strength. You know, we're, we're trying to hire before the need of the position ever comes. So that when the need comes, we've already got got someone in the wings and potentially maybe even started training them somewhere else. So it's kind of a it's a better fit to time. We have less time where we have a vacant position that ultimately results in failed service quality and delivery and, and, and most of the time actually has a financial impact negatively on the property. So we're, we we by no means have it figured out, but we're we're just continuing to try to learn what's working and doing that. And then things that don't work, we, we know never to do that again. So, you know, good old trial and error. And then another hot topic is the kind of place of senior living within the healthcare system as a whole, I would say. Sunrise, for instance, has started a Medicare Advantage plan and is kind of becoming a payer or is becoming a payer. And there's a consortium of providers who are also trying to get a Medicare Advantage plan off the ground. And then just generally, as 
acuity has gone up in senior living. I think there's just been more discussion about relationships with other kinds of healthcare providers across the spectrum, whether that's home health or hospital systems, what have you. How are you kind of thinking about this topic and are you seeing any opportunities in things like Medicare Advantage or partnerships with other types of healthcare providers? So I think at this point, we are trying to continue to stay educated on the opportunities and platforms. I think healthcare over the last six to eight years have just had such massive movement in a bunch of different ways. You know, ACOs were really popping up there as, as an entire thing or fad kind of in the early 2010, 2011, 2012 range. And then, you know, obviously with administration change, that fad kind of, I won't say it went away, but just didn't maybe become as prevalent as something that we're focused on. So I think we're trying to watch for trends that are going to be stays. We also really enjoy the private pay market. It, It keeps the process simple. It keeps our exposure to, you know, Medicare billing and things like that away from us. It kind of simplifies the business right now. And and I still think there's a a massive need in this country and especially within the Southeast of kind of really still high quality private pay senior housing. And and I don't see that need going away anytime soon. So I think we're going to continue to just stay educated and and understand and, and when a trend like maybe say Medicare Advantage or something like that really shows a benefit that outweighs the risk that comes along with those types of reimbursals, then I think we'll actually look at some implementation methods. But right now, we're just continuing to partner with local health organizations, asking them what their pain points are, and then setting up customized programs around them to service their needs and make sure they're getting what they need. And then ultimately, that just creates and blossoms into a great referring relationship. And so, you know, like with Wellstar and Northside here in Atlanta, those are kind of the things we focused on within our local markets. All right, great. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. This was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again for joining the podcast. No worries, Tim. You have a great day, bud. You too. I'd like to again thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care, and remind you that if you're looking to streamline your workflows for service delivery and documentation, visit www.pointclickcare.com to see how Point Click Care's new mobile app, Canyon, provide you with simplified services and medication delivery. Before we get to my next interview with Solera's Adam Kaplan, I'm joined here by my colleague, Jack Silverstein. Jack wrote an in-depth report on multi-brand strategies for senior living that we released earlier this year. And he also recently moderated a panel on the topic at our first ever build conference here in Chicago. So Jack, I just want to pick your brain a little bit. I'm wondering if you can share more information about why we're seeing more senior living providers starting to create multiple brands. Yeah, definitely. You know, at its core, the multi-brand strategy is just pretty simple effort by operators to improve penetration rates, expand market share. And they do this by offering differentiated products for different consumers. It's essentially what major hotel chains do. As a traveler, I might be bound to or loyal to a certain hotel brand like Hilton or Marriott, but my needs for a given stay in a given city might differ and hence dictate my choice of what I'm looking for from that hotel, which specific hotel I stay at in Chicago, New York, Houston, wherever. Now, obviously, the consumer pool for hospitality is much broader than for senior living. You're talking about anybody, you know, 18 to however old can stay at a hotel and they're staying for a few days, not, you know, many years. So that is different. And so no senior living operator is going to come anywhere close to what, you know, 
Marriott has with 30 brands and they shouldn't. The sweet spot as leaders have told us who are working in this space, it's probably about four to six brands. Six might be on six is the high side. We're basically talking about branded products over different price points, different acuity levels, different care levels, different, even some cases, you know, something like with Maplewood where they've got Inspire, which is for an urban market. And then they've got Maplewood for suburban. That's really the question with multi-brand is how does an operator divide the brands so that they serve different consumer pools while also not diluting any one product line. Some operators are branding across price point, having a high-end product, a more affordable product. So Eclipse Senior Living, for instance, the way that they're doing it is they're splitting their portfolio into a quadrant. Um, They've got two affordable products that exist now, which is Embark for low acuity and Elmcroft for high acuity, and then they've got forthcoming high-end products that will, again, be servicing one low and one high acuity. Pathway to Living does something similar. They split their AL into a high-end and middle market. You know, we said this is for improving penetration rates, but I think it's also got a fascinating impact on employee engagement because, again, the multi-brand strategy, it's a resident-centered living model. Operators are targeting everything they do at certain residents delivering on certain kinds of needs. So if you're doing something based on what your resident wants in terms of food choice or technology offerings or room size or activities, or, you know, whether you're in the suburbs or in a city, you can then have staff that have a better understanding of who they're serving and what they need to do to connect with those residents. I think anytime you have an opportunity to better inform your staff of what is required of them and what will help them do their job, they're going to be happier, more engaged, We see the same thing with smart technology, where people talk about how the smart tech allows their staff to have make better choices about their highest and best use of their time and and really, you know, manage their time. So I think that this has maybe an under discussed employee engagement element, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I think your point about workforce is really interesting. I definitely also heard their potential benefits, but also challenges that will extend across pretty much every facet of operations to some extent with a multi-brand play. With workforce, definitely there's the potential benefit, I think, as you said, in having a workforce that really knows how to serve a particular niche market. Maybe there's the challenge of having the right staffing levels, different staffing levels for different brand identities, and then appropriate training modules in place for different brands. But then another additional benefit that I've heard is that this could potentially help with engagement and retention from a career development standpoint. If you've got a higher touch, higher end brand, and then could potentially promote folks to those communities as they prove themselves, maybe in other parts of the portfolio. So Jack, thanks for joining us. I think that's really helpful context going into the next interview with Adam Kaplan. Before we get to that, I want to once again, thank our sponsor, Point Click Care. And with that, we will uh, transition over to my chat with Solaire Senior Living Founder and CEO, Adam Kaplan. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just to get a little background, uh, you founded Solera in 2016. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, April 2016. Did you always have an itch to start your own company? You know, I did actually. So growing up, I was uh, in a household where my father, he had come from nothing, grew up in Brooklyn without a dad, lived in a studio apartment with his mom and his sister. And he grew a successful business, which is now Senior Lifestyle, one of the larger 
owner operators in the business. I spent a number of years there, nine years to be exact. And, you know, for me, I found that experience to be fulfilling, but never really could avoid that desire to go pave my own way. And so, you know, when that opportunity presented itself for me, candidly, it's been one of the most liberating and most empowering feelings in my life. So while, you know, you certainly invite stresses along with it that you don't find working in more of a a corporate environment, that is well offset by the rewards of of being able to, uh, to build a business. That's great. Can you describe what Solera's portfolio looks like today in terms of how many communities and what parts of the country? Sure. So we have nine assets in the portfolio today that's broken up between three existing properties and six developments. The three existing are divided between one asset that we own and operate and then two third-party management deals. The one consistency between all those is that they're all newer uh, projects. So the, the two third parties, we stepped in about 18 months after they opened their doors. And then the deal that we acquired was a value-add acquisition that was built by an not-for-profit and uh, was about four years old when we closed on the acquisition. The core of our business has been the development strategy. The developments are geographically diversified, but the consistency is that they're all in more urban infill locations. They're all larger projects, 100 plus apartments, and they're all targeting the higher end demographics. So we really select areas with higher incomes, higher home values, good density within a 10 mile, 10 minute drive time, which I describe as like kind of 50,000 plus people within that radius. And uh, markets where generally there's some kind of barriers to entry, it's tough to find land, tough to get entitlements, and thus the existing product is to some degree obsolete. So that, that's that been the core, but the acquisitions and third parties has been an opportunity for us, a way for us to build out our track record as an operator and also to generate income, reinvest in building out our infrastructure to hire great talent and to build out our, our systems. Great. So one thing I definitely wanted to talk about was the branding strategy that you have in mind as the portfolio grows. So I think you have spoken in the past about the intention to create multiple brands under the Solera umbrella. Is that right? Yeah. So we don't brand the acquisitions. So the the acquisitions, we either inherit the name that's in place, or if there's a reason that we want to pivot off of the existing strategy, then we'll actually create a new sub-brand for that asset, but they're not really our core strategy. So we leave those under either their their existing names or we create unique brands for those deals. In terms of the development strategy, we've kept them under basically two brands today. One has been what we refer to as our Solera brand, and then the other one is Solera Reserve. They're pretty similar in many respects, but the primary differences is is how we is the the market and just the level of how high end the demographics are. So it, it allows us to capture a little bit wider of a net. I think for most companies, they would consider all of our assets to be the ultra luxury for senior living. But for us, we've said, okay, we might still really like the market. It's it still allows us to really differentiate through our design, differentiate through our services, but we can still go in 
build a product and deliver a certain level of services, but distinguish a little bit between what is our main brand, our Solera brand, and our reserve brand. And certain operational differences that people can connect to, like, you know, I'll give you two examples. One would be our front desk staff. In our Solera brand, we have front desk staff, concierge staff, 12 days a week, seven, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. In our reserve brand, we staff the front desk 24-7. Another example could be our culinary. We still have very, very good quality uh, food service regardless. But in our reserve brand, we elevate that even more. So we have more dollars for food. And then we actually might have more, a little bit more dollars. So we could have an executive chef, a sous chef, and a pastry chef on staff, as well as a front of house manager. We have some variation of that in just the, in the Solera brand. But again, we elevate it slightly more in our reserve brand. Um, and then we also keep the optionality open for creating new brand strategies. So we are pursuing an opportunity right now in Las Vegas where we would actually partner with a healthcare system. And so that would be something that would be a deviation from what we're doing with the Solera brand. And so in that case, we would very likely create a new brand and that brand would represent something a little bit different where I'd say the Solera brand we really associate with hospitality and design. The brand that we might launch in Las Vegas with the healthcare system would be a little bit different in that it would be a little bit more focused on some of the things that would differentiate in the market through healthcare. We've also looked at some opportunities to build in a mixed-use development. We're pursuing one right now actively. And that would also be another opportunity where we create a new sub-brand. And that brand would be something that would be specifically focused on projects where they're a part of a larger mixed-use development. Got it. I wanted to ask about that Las Vegas uh, development where it, there might be a health system partnership. I, I believe that's still in the works, so I'm not sure how much you can describe it. But I'm curious if you can provide any more detail on what partnership kind of means in this case. Because I think we've seen some examples where a health system might actually be a co-developer. In other cases, it's kind of a referral partnership or providing services on site in terms of healthcare, are you sort of still in discussions about what the partnership would look like? And can you share any details? We are still in early discussions about what that would look like. It's going to be evolving over time. And I think the way that we would view it is that we would continue to focus on what we do best, which is understanding the seniors housing business. And we would bring that expertise to the development projects in the way we look at design and we would bring it to how we approach service and creating exceptional experiences for our residents and the families. What they would bring would be something a bit different. They would bring a focus on research because we would have a captive audience of individuals that would live in the community that would have more of a dementia, Alzheimer's diagnosis. And so it would allow them to expand their research efforts. And then it would also allow them to extend their mission and to provide 
services to people suffering with diseases of the brain. So again, it's something that's kind of conceptual. There's some examples out there, for example, on Village announced recently, and I think we'll use those as a way to explore how the partnership looks. But I expect that it's something that will be living and breathing and will evolve over time. And really, truthfully, the, the, Las, the way we envision it is Las Vegas would be a beta. And then we would see how that relationship works. And assuming that it's successful and beneficial for all parties, all stakeholders, then we would look to grow that partnership more on a national scale. And do you foresee the potential for payment streams to be affected by healthcare partnerships as well? I'm thinking specifically of Medicare Advantage. Some health systems have their own Medicare Advantage plans, and we see Medicare Advantage potentially starting to pay for more senior living services. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of potential. I think that's very exciting. Because we're a growing company, and you know, as I mentioned, we have nine assets in our portfolio. We want to be really careful uh, not to try to be everything to everybody, which is, again, one of the reasons why we really hyper-focus on newer assets in um, you know, larger markets with higher incomes and higher home values where we can really differentiate through design and services. We've not gotten into ancillary businesses like pharmacy or home health. We've tried to really stay focused on what we do best. And I think if we were at this stage of our business to expand beyond that, it, it runs the risk of diluting our core strategy. So I think if we partner with companies like a healthcare system that already have that expertise, it'll, it allows us to leverage that and to explore those different vehicles for growing the business, which are creative to our organization. But the reality is that there's a lot of trends right now. What we try to stay focused on is trends related to designing luxury projects and operating and providing service to seniors. And if it falls out outside of that, our view is that it's a distraction. Again, I'm not making a blanket statement. If you're a large organization with more resources, then you have the capability to do that. But for our organization, I think the, one of the keys for our success is to try to stay focused. Got it. I guess circling back a little bit to the conversation we're having about the brand diversification, I'm curious, one thing that we've heard from some other companies that are pursuing the strategy is that they're kind of going for maybe distinctly different price points in their different brands, for example, that would allow them to maybe open two communities in the same metro area and go after two different resident profiles. But it sounds like, so far at least, your brands are distinct, but maybe not that different in terms of the resident profile. Or do you think that, am I wrong there? And do you think that, could you see opening two of the, you know, two Solera owned and operated communities relatively close to each other and kind of have different segments that you're going after? No, I really, I really can't see that. Mm -hmm. And again, the reason is because I think a lot of the bigger companies that have hit stumbling blocks What's happened is they've become too opportunistic and too diversified. So they're looking to scale up their management company, which is frankly in conflict sometimes to like your objective of really being a you know, best in class provider. 
So, you know, those companies are now in tertiary markets and secondary and primary. They're doing affordable. They're doing moderate. They're doing luxury. They're doing ultra luxury. They're doing standalone memory care and full CCRCs. And, and my view is that it becomes very dilutive. Now, you could parallel it to the hotel industry all you want, but the reality is that in the hotel industry, if you look at companies like a Marriott and Hilton, they have enough scale within these sub-brands that they can really build infrastructure within each one. So if you work on the Hampton Inn brand, you're working on the Hampton Inn brand. You're not also working across Hampton Inn and Hilton Garden Inn and Hilton and Waldorf Astoria. And in senior living, people can't build up enough scale to deploy that same strategy. So for us, the answer is that we want to be careful not to scale at the expense of being the best operator in a market. So the way we think about things is a little bit different. Instead of saying, okay, let's let's have a few assets in the market. Maybe one is a tax credit deal and one is you know, a middle market asset and another one is just, you know, our core kind of luxury asset. The way we think about it is let's look at other ways to scale where we can leverage our core competencies. So for example, you know, let's align with a healthcare company and let's create a joint venture and bring our expertise on design and, and customer service and, and customer experience to the table. Or let's look at building as part of mixed use development and having a project where you know, we're part of a, you know, they're, we're adjacent to a multifamily development, a hotel development, entertainment development, retail development. And so if you think about that, and you just kind of, it's very creative. And there's a lot of benefits to the senior living community being a part of that community. I think there's also benefits for the other uses of having senior living as part of that development. And so we, we like, we like that strategy. We would look at you know even more urban infill kind of projects, projects that are located in a, you know a downtown location. Those are obviously tough to come by, and they're they're challenging to program, especially when you know historically multifamily and hotel have been hot. But as those uses are, are less viable because there's just too much supply in the market, you know, senior housing becomes more of an option. You know, even I mentioned at the build conference, I mentioned as a possible strategy doing something as part of a you know, a college campus where we would align with the university. We're trying to do that. Like even like we have a project in Evanston, so it's, um, it's not on necessarily Northwestern's campus, but like trying to find ways where it would be attractive for, you know, alumni or, or professors and where we can offer continuing education classes. So we think that that's more interesting. And again, it really plays off the key I mean, is playing off your core competencies. Don't dilute yourself where you're really not unique and different and specialized. So we don't want to get caught up in those trends, try to scale up in markets at the expense of really doing what we do extremely well. Yeah, I'm a Northwestern alum, so I love all of the senior living buildings that's going on in Evanston. And I'm envisioning myself in one of those buildings one day. So that's great. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you want to go to Cornell's hospitality school? Is that right? I went to Cornell, Hotel and Restaurant Management for undergrad, and I went to Kellogg for my MBA. Got it. So I guess drawing on that hospitality background that you have in terms of your education, I'm curious, obviously, the multi-brand strategy is one practice that's common in hospitality, and you've already kind of explained some of the similarities and differences that you see in senior living. I'm curious if there are other 
industry practices from the world of hotels or hospitality that you think could or should play a bigger role in senior living? Two things that I have in mind maybe are on the pricing side, we've heard about some providers trying to play around with more dynamic pricing. And then we've also been talking to some people who are seeing what hotels have been able to do with restaurants and bring in sort of celebrity chefs and creating kind of destination restaurants that bring in people from the community. Yeah, um, great, great points. I, I think in terms of how we price senior living, you know, historically, you've seen a lot of operator investors kind of reprice units once a year, and that's just not fluid enough. And so I think the good operators you are seeing and investing in in certain kind of systems where they have more real-time intel on the market, which is also being enabled by some of the efforts of like the NIC and ASHA, where we're seeing greater transparency into pricing and performance. So, you know, some of the information from the data points you just didn't have available to you historically. But yes, the truth is, it's a business. You need to optimize your revenues. And, and that shouldn't be a once-a-year exercise. So I don't see it going exactly to the same degree as a hotel, but it will move a lot closer towards that over time. In terms of like the restaurant and the restaurants and, and aligning with celebrity chefs, I think that's the, the way we're moving. I look at it as like co-branding. So you don't you don't have to be everything to everyone. You can leverage expertise in markets. So certain things we're doing in Denver, for example, in Kensington Project, where we're actually partnering with local businesses that already have a brand. For example, like instead of buying the ice cream from uh, U.S. Food Service or from Cisco, one of the distributors, we'll buy like a specialty ice cream from Bonnie Bray, which is a you know a, a very well known ice cream brand in, in Denver. In our Kensington development, we've got actually a coffee shop that was a historic building. We've integrated into our new project and we will open up to the public. And with that, we've been in conversations with several local coffee purveyors. And you know, we're gonna serve a really high quality coffee there and leverage the the brand and the following of that brand in that in that market. We like the idea of bringing in chefs. I think our thought would be more to do it on like a Monday or a Tuesday when maybe the business, the restaurant business is is a little bit quieter because obviously we're not seeing dips clearly in participation in our food program on those days. And so, you know, to align with maybe a local restaurateur chef have them come in, uh, prepare a special menu, and have um, residents um, be able to participate in that. I think that unlike in the past where you had kind of one one dining option that people ate at three meals a day, 365 days a year, you're seeing more variety. We're introducing that. We have several dining venues in all of our projects. We have more of kind of that casual concept and then more of your more of your traditional formal venue. We also really think about connection to the outdoor spaces. So we we offer in all of our projects, we have outdoor dining. And so we want to have variety within our venues. We have full bars in every place. We're looking at like mobile to do like um, mobile juices in our fitness and wellness centers. We have a very big focus, similar to like a hotel would on our wellness centers now where, you know, historically they were kind of buildings where they would add a fitness 
room. It was an interior room, no windows. They, you know, add in some equipment. Now we have like actual studios that would look like you're going to like a, a core power studio that are really well fitted out. There's well, uh, relaxation rooms in our centers, much like you would find at a spa. They're really what I would describe as like a destination. We want places to feel like a destination. So it has its own identity. We name all of our spaces. So it's not just like this is the fitness center, but actually there's a, there's actually like a name for the center. So we are definitely trying to expand upon what the industry has done in terms of the design, in terms of how we think about the program, in terms of partnering with local businesses. And I think as you're seeing other industries are more mature, senior living is obviously a significant growth industry. People used to have such a negative association with senior living. Obviously, it was like 10 years ago when I would tell people, I said, I, you know, I'm in the senior living business. They'd say, oh, you're in the nursing home business. I'd say, no, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm in senior living. I do independent and assisted living. And people were like, hey, you know, relax. Don't, don't, don't take it so personally. I'd be like, no, there's, there's a big difference. And now I think people are much more educated, probably because the quality of the products evolved. And also, you know, most, most people have been affected by it in some way. They've, they've looked at senior living for, you know, a loved one in their family. So I think it's becoming more accepted. And because it's becoming more accepted, you're able to actually make headway if you reach out to businesses that already have brand equity and, you know, approach them about, you know, forming partnerships. So I'm really excited about that. We're working on something too with a well-known personal trainer um, who actually is the trainer for, I'd say, one of the most high-profile seniors in the U.S. And so we've, we've been having discussions with him about you know, forming a partnership and what that looks like. And uh, it's been a really interesting dialogue, and I'm hopeful that, uh, that we make progress uh, with him. But I think, again, instead of just a senior living operator saying, hey, this is our, this is our fitness program or this is our dining program, I think leveraging existing brands in different ways is what the future looks like and will elevate the quality of the product and everyone will frankly benefit. Excellent. So I just want to close with a couple of more big picture questions. First of all, what are the biggest challenges you're facing at this moment? What's keeping you up at night these days? Well, the industry, the good part about the industry is is that what's the future looks like. And, and that's that's due to the demographic story in the United States and also just due to the evolution of our business. The, the negative of that is that it's attracted a lot of attention in terms of new entrants on the development side, on the capital side. So there's supply risk and just kind of how long it'll take these new developments to perform, to, to lease up. Um, will there be rate compression? We don't have legacy buildings, so I don't have to worry, fortunately, about like the older stock and the implications on on the older stock. But that that's, of course, one of the risks. We're, we're thinking a lot about the talent piece. There's there's clearly labor shortages. You're seeing a lot of existing products running at high agency usage, high levels of overtime. That has obviously implications on the financials. It has significant implications on quality of service and care. So how we approach talent, how we attract good talent in the organization, how we train and develop the talent within the company, and then how we engage the talent and create high-performing culture where people want to come to work, feel good about the organization that they work for. That's, that's a huge priority for our team. And then I would say just innovation in general and, you know, 
understanding the trends, what's important to the consumer, the resident, the resident of the future, the adult child, the influencers, you're really getting that right and staying close to it and evolving is really important. I think one of the areas that we have an appreciation for is technology. And there's, there's a lot of obsolete technology. Just look at, um, you know, your, what I, the e-call system, you know, where you have a pull cord on the wall in the bedroom, in the bathroom. It's unbelievable to me that most developer operators are still installing those in projects. And again, it takes, call it 24 months for, from when you make that decision to when that project opens up. So in my view, those are already obsolete today. So it's going out and finding the technology of the future and doing a sufficient diligence on the front end to make sure that you are aligning with the right group that has a good quality technology that's going to be around in the long run. So that keeps me up a lot because, again, I think that's an area that's evolving rather quickly. There's a tremendous amount of complacency I I see um, in the industry with respect to technology, and uh, we're just not settling. We're really focused in terms of you know, what, what does the future look like and who are the organizations that are going to shape the future? So I think overall, it's a very exciting time if you're willing to be a part of the future innovation within the space and you are keeping a close pulse on, you know, where the industry is today, where, where it's going and how do you deliver a product that people want. And, you know, there's, there's certainly risks in the short run and we are going in with our eyes wide open and doing what we can to mitigate that through our, through our structures, through our deal structures, through our growth strategy and through our, our focus and emphasis on the talent piece of the equation and through technology. And I feel excited about where our business is going, where the industry is going, and look forward to uh, you know the n- the next few years and uh, coming out of this in a, in a good place after we've gotten through kind of some of the the learning curves and some of these short term pains that we're we're experiencing as an industry. Right. Well, I think that's actually a great place to uh, leave the conversation. So it was great to chat with you, and thanks so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, appreciate you uh, including me and I enjoyed participating. Well, be sure to keep us posted as you uh, can announce uh, the healthcare partnerships and the uh, fitness trainer. We're eager to keep reporting on the news. Will do. That does it for this episode of Transform. I'd like to give another shout out to our sponsor, Point Click Care. Until next time, I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.